facilitating this discussion and thank you all for joining us. We hope that you and your families are all staying safe and healthy. My name is Marcel Lashley Cabore and I am the founder and CEO of Girls with Knowledge Inc, a 501c3 whose mission is to provide resources of empowerment globally to the world's most marginalized to help them discover and fulfill their fullest potential and effect positive change. Our goal is to shape young social activists and global business leaders who respond to human need and fight for human rights around the world. And today it's all about how we can use citizen science to fight for the bees. Of the 4,000 species of bees in North America, one in four is at risk of extinction. August is the most productive month for bees. With August 15th as World Honeybee Day, National Honey, De Honey Month on the horizon in September, and all of us self-isolating at home, this conversation is important to bring light to the threat bees are facing and to provide places where people can get involved at a safe distance. That said, I'm excited to announce the relaunch of Earth Challenge 2020 on August 25th, which will include news new ways that you can help scientists save the bees. To talk more about the importance of bees, as well as the Citizen Science Project, we have an esteemed group of expert panelists that I would like to introduce. So please, join me now. Let's get busy. <laughs> Our first guest panel is Landon Van Dyke, Senior Advisor at the, United the U.S. Department of State, serving as the Global Coordinator of Energy, Environment, and Sustainability Efforts. Landon works to ensure department compliance with federal energy and environmental requirements and also works to advance innovations related to sustainability within operations, serving as a bridge between policy and management initiatives. Welcome, Landon. Thank you. Our next guest is Kathleen Rogers, the president of Earth Day Network. Kathleen has more than 20 years of experience as an environmental attorney and advocate. Her work has focused on international and domestic environmental public policy and law under her leadership. Earth Day Network has developed a significant role in advancing the new green economy and emerged as a dynamic year-round policy and activist organization. Earth Day Network now reaches into 192 countries, embraces new constituencies and integrates civic participation into each of its programs and activities. Welcome Kathleen. Thank you for having me. Ann Bowser, our next panelist, is the Director of Innovation at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, a quasi-government think tank. Her research explores how new advances in science and technology can be leveraged to maximize social and environmental good. The Wilson Center's work in open science, including through citizen science, open data, and open source hardware, seeks to bridge public, academic, and public policy perspectives to create actionable insights. Thank you. Welcome. Our final panelist, Sam Droji, has spent most of his career at the USGS, uh, yeah, USGS <laughs> uh, Patuxent Wildlife Research Center, where he has coordinated the North American Breeding Bird Survey Program developed the North American Amphibian Monitoring Program, the BioBlitz, Cricket Crawl, and Frog Watch USA programs, and worked on the design and evolution of evaluation of monitoring programs. Currently, he is developing an inventory and monitoring program for native bees, online identification guides for North American bees, um, and working with Jessica Zelt, reviving the North American bird phenology program. Welcome, welcome, welcome to you, Thank Sam. You. <laughs> Before we go deep dive into the bees, I'd like to begin with Anne. And can you begin by telling us what is citizen science? Sure. It's a very old concept, but a pretty simple one. It really is just the public participating in science. Citizen science takes many different forms. It can be grassroots environmental justice, like the activities that we saw in Flint, Michigan. It can be digital crowdsourcing, like um, the hundreds of thousands of volunteers that classify different images from the Hubble Space Telescope or it can be the types of biodiversity and environmental monitoring projects that people like Sam work on, where members of the public are helping ecologists just do their research better. Thank you. Sam, 
can you tell me or tell us a little bit about the research that you've done on these? Yeah, so I work mostly on kind of fundamental and foundation things that help support other people's research. So super simple things like how do you count bees? You know, how do you catch them? What are they? Um, how do you identify them? So we need development of uh, identification guides. And then we get involved with um, statistical issues, which I'd be happy to talk about, but no one ever really wants me to talk about it, um, on how to analyze those data, all the little tricks and traps of um, coming up with a good estimate of how, how bees are doing. And so we look at status, we look at really the, the most uh, simple of questions. Very nice. So Kathleen, what is Earth Challenge 2020? And why is this project innovative? I'd like to ask actually that Landon and Anne join it with Kathleen and, and share, with, share that with me from your perspective. Tell us about Earth Challenge 2020. Yeah, I think I'd like to start with sort of the evolution of this. And Landon and I go back uh, a long way, but about four or five years ago, Landon and I were chatting about citizen science and activism and citizen engagement. And over the course of this process of creating the app and having Anne uh, and Wilson Center join us along with many, many other partners, uh, the concept of Earth Challenge really evolved. For Earth Day Network, um, one of the most important uh, attributes of Earth Challenge 2020 was to give uh, greater access to opportunities for children and adults uh, to engage in citizen science. And Earth Day has a long history of being engaged in science, uh, and it was part of the evolution of Earth Day as well. Our Earth Day's first event on April uh, 22nd, 1970 was entirely based on science. Earth Day Network also got involved in promoting uh, scientists and activism through March for Science, which we led a large part of. And uh, the, it, as I said, the concept uh, emerged as one that would combine um, hardcore principles of AI and other innovations that I'm less um, technically engaged in, uh, but believe in. And it combines those technical elements with uh, an opportunity for citizens to engage in activism. So Earth Challenge is a combination of science and engagement and education and um, civic activism. And that for us is the innovative part of Earth Challenge 2020. I'd be remiss in not letting Ann and Landon talk about all of the technical attributes of this, some of which um, are evolving as we speak. But for Earth Day Network, uh, promoting science, belief in science, and citizen engagement is the underpinnings um, of our engagement and the innovative part of Earth Challenge 2020. Thank you, Kathleen. Landon, get on in there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, thank you for having me. Um, for, for the State Department, really, it's, it's uh, very similar to what Kathleen was talking about. For us, it's about engaging citizens across the world um, on issues that are important to both them and the United States. Uh, for us, it's the environment, sustainability, helping other countries uh, obtain their sustainability goals, uh, whether it's at the city level or provincial level or at the national level. Uh, so when uh, this opportunity came forward and it was really about, hey, how can we get uh, citizens to help collect data and understand a little bit more about uh, the environment around them and have a fuller appreciation of, of um, the data around them that they can actually contribute, it made sense for us to participate. So a lot of the, the innovation for us on the eco-diplomacy side, I mean, the, the term eco-diplomacy is about, uh, you know, focusing on the ecology and the environment and using it within our diplomacy and our engagement with other countries. And so uh, when we green an American embassy around the world, um, many times those embassies are the, the only uh, sustainable or the first sustainable building in that particular country. And so we get to share with the, uh, the, the citizens and the, and the, the local uh, community, uh, you know, the art of the possible. And we see this as one of those things where it's the art of the possible, how we can use um, uh, information that citizens are, are running upon and bringing it into the science community, so. Thank you, Anne. 
So for us, a lot of it goes back to the data. My program, the Science and Technology Innovation Program at the Wilson Center spends a lot of time thinking about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And these are a set of 17 goals that countries around the world have agreed represent targets that we should aim for for a more sustainable future. And a lot of them are environmental. And over 60% of the environmental SDGs don't have enough data to actually allow us to monitor progress against achieving the goals. And there's this phrase, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And I think this is very true for the SDGs as well as national policies and as well as local policies. So one answer from our perspective is that citizen science in general presents a new and relatively underutilized or undertapped opportunity for collecting data to fill those gaps. And we have this great app that we're working on with Earth Day State and GeoMarvel, but we're also integrating data from existing citizen science projects that have been around for decades and in some cases centuries to be able to bring all of that existing on the ground work together and try to get the answers about what is actually happening in our environment and what has been happening over the last couple of years. And then I also really like what Landon said about this being illustrative of the art of the possible, something that we're really excited to explore through the work on insects, for example, is how we can use citizen science, not just to collect data, but to label images and then create different types of machine learning solutions that can benefit our project directly, but also other citizen science projects out there. And I think that's something really cool about Earth Challenge that we're doing for insects, as well as plastic pollution, and probably a couple of the other areas that we're exploring. Yeah, let me just say one more thing, which I forgot to say at the beginning, and it's part of my general speech to the world about Earth Challenge. Um, as Ann and Landon said, it's, um, what we're doing is combining two different things. Uh, the first is, as Anne said, aggregating citizen science from around the world to create a one-stop shopping. So our ultimate goal, um, and it's moving along in this way, is to integrate all this data so that your average citizen or citizen scientist, or of course scientists themselves, can go on and find lots of information, lots of data points. So you could drill down to your zip code or your geographic location and see information about plastics pollution, health, climate change, food security, the list is growing of uh, widgets, as we call them, uh, parts of our app that will be allowed um, to both integrate citizen science data and then data sets from groups around the world. Our long-term goal is to put information in the hands of everybody around the world so that we don't um, keep citizen science to ourselves. And having been um, involved in lots of citizen science projects, mostly as a parent, uh, what I discovered is are two things, uh, that generally speaking, uh, citizen science projects are in silos. There's no place to find a whole bunch of data about a whole bunch of things related to where I live. And the second thing was that many citizen science groups are in it really for the science. They know how valuable it is, what they're doing for local scientists and global scientists, but they're not educating people on a regular basis about what those citizen science discovered um, as they were doing their work. And the last part is because we've attached a very innovative, sometimes sort of radical approach to um, providing opportunities for every citizen science scientist around the world to take an action. Um, and most of them are tailored to their specific country and specific legislation that may or may not pass. So it gives uh, a pathway to citizen science citizenship, if you will, which I think uh, in addition to the education, the aggregation of the data, and the opportunities to play a role in changing things are sort of brand new elements and part of the innovation of Earth Challenge 2020. Thank you. So if Anne and Landon would agree. <laughs> Do you agree, Anne and Landon? No. Okay, so I want to repeat and reiterate for anyone that may have missed it that the the launch is the, the app is relaunching on August 25th. This is correct, Kathleen? Yes, it is. Fantastic. So August 15th is National Honeybee Day. Sam, what are the major challenges facing honeybees and other types of pollinators? You're, you're muted, Sam. I'm 
there's a lot of people in the lab, so <laughs> keep things tamped down. Uh, well, so when you think about this, there's a lot of things going on for honeybees and also for all the native bees in the different parts of the world um, that you'll hear about. So you'll hear about uh, uh, pesticides, you'll hear about um, all kinds of um, pathogens and introduced uh, diseases, those kinds of things. But the driver everywhere is going to be habitat loss and specifically it's flowers. So if you think about bees, every single bee species with maybe just a couple of exceptions, because um, there's always exceptions, of course, um, are dependent completely on pollen and nectar, sometimes oils, but everything is given by flowers. And so it's a plant-based solution. So in addition to just paving things and making it all into high-intensity um, agricultural or industrial areas, those are complete losses. So we can zero out that from the Earth's capacities we have to also look at what are we doing with these kinds of landscapes that are maybe man-altered or man-dominated in terms of fostering flowers or eliminating flowers. So a lot of the solution is actually really easy. It's like lawns, flip them back to flowers, look at native plants. Um, how do we incorporate that back into um, the systems where they came from? Um, you know, each area on the globe has a set of native plants that are are completely tied to the native bees. Honeybees are using lots of different resources in these areas and less concerned about them. The real conservation issue is not a honeybee one. They're associated with the loss of flowers, but it's actually a um, wild bee one. Each wild bee needs a certain kind of set of flowers. Each flower has its own preferences for bees. That interactions gets um, disentangled sometimes. So flowers it's all about flowers it's you know something that we all can participate in our power yeah our power i like it well it take one literally one potted plant on your balcony on the third story of a building that's a native plant that attracts bees is a contribution you're not gonna bring bison back to your um third floor balcony but you can bring back bees very nice well speaking of we have a a, a question from a viewer. Um, saving bees can be a project for school students. If so, how can we implement it with guidance? Well, I can talk I can, a little bit more about Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so um, others can answer different different ways. Um, so first of all, a lot of it, um, a lot of that I hear shadings of stinging issues and things like that. So bees do not um, do not guard, do not protect, do not defend flowers. They defend their nests. Almost all the native bees are single solitary ones with the exception being in North America being bumblebees. And those are not, not like wasps and yellow jackets. So we don't really have a stinging issue when we are augmenting a, a, um, a schoolyard for um, native bees. Um, the tricky thing is it's, um, you know, bird watching isn't a good example, an analog, because we know a lot about that. Well, you know, you can't just say, I want to be a bird watcher and then flip that switch and now I'm a bird watcher and I know all the birds. You have to study it a lot. It's even worse with bees because they're really small, 4,000 species, don't even know all the names in North America. So it's hard to really get into bee watching as finely as we would for, for birds. So it's a different kind of aspect. It's looking at, um, the bees in schoolyards, you can use these very simple traps, which are just colored bowls. Go to the party store, fill them with soapy water. Bees will end up in them. They are dead, but um, it allows the, the students to look at different places, different parts of the schoolyard, and what's um, attracting, what's not attracting bees. Adding flowers to the schoolyard, making up simple kinds of questions, which is like, what's the preference? Okay, we have several different blooming flowers, the bees on each of them, I can guarantee you are going to be different from one another. The students don't need to know exactly what they're looking at. They can come up with their own terminology. This is what, this is what taxonomists do anyway. It's, they just make it up, right? So make up their own terminology, what species of bees and other creatures are on each of these flowers and compare them and decide which is better, which is not. So there's a lot of those kinds of things. You can dial into something more fancy, but observation things, putting, playing with flowers, looking at who comes to the flowers. All good. Don't be scared. Yeah, could I, could I have something to do that about students? I mean, one of our thing that works um, 
major goals is to integrate, I mean, truly integrate uh, environmental literacy into our curricula uh, worldwide. And uh, to that end, we're in the process of working with countries and local governments and everybody else um, to take a look at how we teach um, environmental issues. And as it turns out, bees are incredibly interesting to kids, uh, uh, whether it's the that they pollinate a huge part of our food or that they uh, pollinate 90% of the world's flowers and all the other things that Sam can so ably tell you um, that they do and how important they are. But we really feel that in addition to having the kids um, active on the schoolyard and all the other suggestions, uh, we really do think it's critical that our um, educators integrate uh, bees into a lot of different types of curricula that are crosswalking it through different subject areas. So there are many, many things that um, we feel can take place, whether it's the schoolyard or in the classroom, that will begin to educate people about the extraordinary importance of insects, not always our most favorite um, animal or species, uh, but also specifically about bees. So we'd like to see it really end up in the classrooms being taught on a regular basis. Thank you. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the Earth Day Challenge 2020 app, right? So Landon, how will citizen scientists use this app? Uh, depending upon the widget, um, there, we have multiple um, collection points within the app. And Anne can talk to you a little bit more about the actual science behind it. Um, in fact, Anne, you probably should start out with the questions that you went out to the science community and asked what should we actually be uh, initiating our, our studies on and then I can sure. talk okay so and you want to talk about that and then we'll go back to land and then we'll come back to you about the the data so tell us the process yeah sure so it wasn't just the science community um when Earth Day Network and State approached me with this awesome opportunity what they wanted was an app that people could use to monitor environmental and human health. And that's really, really broad and not necessarily actionable from a scientific research standpoint. So we actually launched a crowdsourcing call for people to tell us the most important questions in human and environmental health. And the Wilson Center did outreach to scientific communities and public policy communities. Earth Day tweeted it out, did everything that they do so wonderfully via social media. And we actually got back hundreds of responses from all seven continents, including someone in Antarctica who really wanted to do citizen science to study microbes in ice. And from all of these responses, we came up with six research topics that we thought really captured what people cared about. And they were air quality, water quality, food security, climate change, plastic pollution, and insect populations. And from those studies, we were able to identify certain questions which um, we felt we could create an app to help capture some of the information. So it, it, a key point here is we're not answering completely, 100%, the science questions that were posed to us. We did identify gaps in the data that science already had and we said okay here are some elements or some areas where we believe uh, science, citizen science could help fill in those gaps and so from that we were able to identify some requirements for the various um, uh, topics that, that Anne was talking about and say okay for like um, for insects for, for the bees you know, um, capturing um, instances or truth observation we did see a bee here and where was it located we can do that. And we were able to um, work with GeoMarvel, which is a wonderful company that's helping us build these apps, um, to, to be able to make a functional um, widget that focused on that. Um, and then how we can help educate uh, the public with the same app, you know, identify, well, what's a bumblebee and, and what's, a, what's a honeybee and, and what's a carpenter bee. Um, we, we're, we're putting together little games to help kind of make it a fun uh, process to learn how to identify this. But then once you get people that are really experts at 
identifying and they have like a really good score on their game, then we kind of open it up to do uh, a training our AI where we start shuffling in more and more photos that have not been processed yet or may have been processed already by other experts to just get, a, uh, to give the machine learning a sense of, okay, this is likely this, and this, this particular photo is like a rep representation of an apis or a, a bumblebee. Um, so we're looking at different ways where we can get the public uh, engaged, excited, coming back, uh, and, and still contribute solid science um, um, uh, contributions to the science community. Thank you, Landon. Um, so Anne, talking about the data, how will the data help uh, advance scientific research? Sure. So what we're doing right now is this is the bumblebee campaign and it's, it's bumblebee time and then also other bees like carpenter bees and honeybees um, and other types of bees as well. And right now we're just asking people to use the app to take pictures of bees in their environment and then upload them. And we're also pulling together pictures from different citizens science projects. Then later in the fall, we're going to do a complimentary campaign when the weather's a little less nice, people are stuck inside for various reasons, where people can go back to the app and actually drag the pictures into different categories to learn, first of all, learn a little bit more about bees and how to classify them, and then actually do that work through the app. And then after that, we're working with a group of professional researchers, including with Sam um, and hopefully his network, to look at what volunteers did in terms of those classifications of the photos that people took and then classify them down to the species level. And our ultimate goal is to explore how this process can help train better machine learning algorithms. This is kind of the science behind it. It's science, but also technology so that any picture of a bee that's taken, let's say in a year and a half, two years from now, that person can, with also advances in computing, get a notification on their phone that tells them exactly what it is. And we think that that can really improve the experience for all of the volunteers who are sharing information and spending their time helping this project out. But other people can also reuse this for a wide range of research projects and to help conservation and to help drive change. Wow, that's fantastic. Sam, what have we gained from natural history oriented citizen science? Can you talk a little bit about that? What we've been yeah. Well, um, think about animals and plants. You know, they're, they're complex, they're across the entire country. Um, we have lots of geographic areas. They sometimes bloom at this time of year. They emerge, they sing at different times of year. Um, even though federal and states have responsibilities for the management and the care and the conservation of these um, groups and are interested in monitoring, um, the funding's not there. Like it would be, it's very difficult to come up with a, a mechanism for the federal government to have full-time or even part-time employees, you know, they're just inefficient at a lot of that kind of stuff to go out and collect the kinds of data that citizen science have always done. So we can go back to the 1880s for the first citizen science projects. One was the weather service. So you had this network of people who just did simple things like take temperatures and uh, log the data from uh, their homes. And then you have another whole system that was a, right at the same time is monitoring when and where birds arrived. So um, from the point of view of where do we get our information about how um, plants and animals are doing, a big chunk has always come from citizen scientists. We didn't call them that back in the day. But if we look at uh, bird watching, what's the status of butterflies? There weren't government surveys that um, looked at these and decided like, oh my gosh, we're not seeing any more whooping cranes. It was the fact that bird watchers and people on their own time and collectors, so a lot of the insect um, world is monitored by, you know, particularly in the past, by people who put together large insect collections, including butterflies. So the history has always been there. The difficulty for the government is how do we fund something? And so even the more recent government programs, the Breeding Bird Survey, Frog Watch, and these other things, is really harnessing um, citizens. Again, wasn't always called that citizen science is a new term, but for us, we've had a hugely long history of 
using people to do the collecting who are not going to get paid and are acting as, in that case, our uh, collaborators, correspondents, they were called uh, volunteers sometimes. So we're now quantifying that and we're also bringing that um, outside of the world of the advanced amateur naturalists and bringing it to what can everyday people who immediately want to start participating. And that's some of the interesting tricky things here. What Anne mentioned and Kathleen um, and Langdon is that we now have people who all have, have monitoring devices. And almost everyone, even kids have cell phones um, or smartphones or whatever they're called these days. I only recently got one because they collect data. <laughs> yeah, they're data smartphones. They're, they're data collecting devices to me. I do get a phone call every once in a while. But um, in any case, what you're seeing is now we have really nice mics. We have really good high quality optics and we have networks and people will use those. They're placed throughout in their own networky sort of way throughout the entire continent. How do we capitalize on that without having requirements that everyone, you know, becomes an expert at birds, bees, almost impossible to become an expert at, at uh, bees, it turns out, those kinds of things, but they can take pictures. So bumblebees, relatively large, you have a camera, you can take a picture, AI and some of these other things that we're talking about here um, provide a certain level of identification for people. And then um, what it really is important for is that it sorts out a mass of data. So a problem is it's overwhelming, right? People can collect a lot of things that they say are a bumblebee. And then there's a small number of people who could do the final determination. But how nice is it that the computer can sort a lot of that data into buckets and give us a avenue to very quickly come up with something that we can think of as authoritarian, authoritarian, uh, authoritative, authoritarian <laughs> would be something else. And <laughs> we can then see, um, <clears throat> start using um, everyone's basically snapshots and then encourage them to go out, they learn more, we interconnect people back to nature. There's lots of positives. And guess what? The government is not going to pay for that. So it has to come from this direction. People like myself who work for the government, very interested in encouraging that, particularly knowing that there's not buckets of money coming down through the pipe to do these kinds of surveys that would be on a higher basis. It pretty much has to be citizens who are going to be monitoring and tracking the natural populations and really the health outside of satellites of the world. Thank you. It, we, we have to all do it together, take responsibility to help save the bees. That's right. We all have smartphones now. We all have smartphones. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there is um, a comment in the um, Q&A box about that. What, what do you do if you don't have a smartphone? How can you still contribute and help? So well, you, could buy, you could buy a smartphone. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, actually, it's... Um, so there's other ways of contributing, um, but it would be, you know, phrase days, even I, a Luddite in that sort of era, it, um, it all is oriented towards the internet and computers to make those same kinds of contributions. The, the contributions that a person like that uh, would be, I would move to is not so much the monitoring, but in the action. Like I mentioned before, it's all about flowers. The more ways you can integrate flowers into your landscapes that you control, working with municipalities, for example, what's going on there with those highways? Why are we mowing every single square or inch of it? Can we leave one mower deck along the edge of the highways, along the fences and um, uh, woods for flowers, therefore for bees? There's these many small things, and a lot of it is talk to the maintenance departments. It's not um, you know, take pictures, it's actually engaging with the world that we live in and looking at yourself closely. Like, uh, I'll just have to tell you that, you know, nature does not make lawns. Uh, that's a choice. And what was there before was high quality natural habitats. It may be a long time ago, but you are part of the problem. So I'm throwing some guilt out here, right? If you have a lawn, you're part of the problem. Let's work on that. You want to make a contribution? Right. Get out there. You know, stop this, you know, move out right now and start digging up that lawn. That's okay. a positive. Yeah, Sam brings up uh, sort of the big angle that Earth Day Network has, which is 
citizen engagement. And so um, in developing our what you can do, so as I said, one of the innovative parts of the app uh, is that after you take a photo, you get a pop-up that asks you what you can do. And you can, with or without a phone, you can go on our website or our others' websites and find the petitions that you can sign. Interestingly, although for, I don't know how long I've known Sam a long time, whenever I hear the word B, I say Sam. Uh, so he is truly a global expert. But when we developed the what you can do's for uh, the 192 countries that we operate in, we consulted with NGOs around the world and even small governments and other people, anybody who wanted to tell us what's the hot topic in your country around bees. And interestingly, although I have utter faith in Sam's um, perspective and the need to protect habitat, it's, it's critically important for all species. Uh, what we found is that many countries were entertaining uh, a lot of uh, legislation around control, um, relabeling, uh, misuse of pesticides. And while it may not be, uh, in, at least from Sam's view and others' view, that um, that is a major issue, it is going on worldwide. And so whether it was Thailand or Germany or endless, endless countries came back to us with deep concern about the proliferation and impacts of pesticides, not just on um, insects, or not just on pollinators generally, but on insects, uh, you know, countrywide, and also health impacts for children, and what does it do to our phone? So a lot of the what you can do is that you find on our um, app uh, for bees are focused on these pesticides, although many others are deeply concerned about habitat. So I want to just present that as interesting that so many countries are dealing with this issue by looking at new regulations around the chemicals that we use on our um, plants, uh, animals, soils. The other interesting development we found in bees, and again, Sam, you know more about this than I do, is that um, the labeling of organic um, often uh, at least connotes or denotes to people that uh, they are buying a product that's not just healthy for them to eat, but also healthy for their environment. And one of the things we're working on right now is looking at how soils and regenerative agriculture in general can be uh, supportive for insects and other species. So that's another angle where we're encouraging people to take a new look at something that we've never talked about as a global population, and that's the relationship between soils, pesticides, habitat, and our ecosystem generally, but in this case, very specifically pollinators and bees. One last thing, Sam, you'll be happy to know that, um, I can't remember the exact name of it, but the U.S. has, I think it's a house, has a bill in front of it called the National Highway Pollinators bill, which would, um, uh, you know, ha ask local governments and, and supply funding to them to do exactly what you said, stop mowing, start planning. So at least that's in the works. Good. I think that's the big, and I, I'm glad that you touched on it, Kathleen and, and Sam. Everyone's asking, you know, what can I do? How can I do my part? Um, and so I think that people have, have definitely shared and, and, and shared what the average citizen can do. And would you like to contribute as well? I see you nodding. So I'm like, I think Anne's got some goodness to share. In terms of what people can do to make a difference, honestly, um, we leave that to, to Earth Day Network. And that's actually one of my favorite parts of the project personally is being able to, to work with Earth Day Network at the Wilson Center. You know, we're very nonpartisan and we don't do research into specific, you know, pro pollinator policies, for example, but really rely on our partners at Earth Day to be able to do that important work. Yeah, it's been an interesting partnership in the sense we have had to balance all of our different interests institutionally. So Anne's and Landon's are different than Earth Day Networks. But I think um, what we came together on uh, for sure is the need to share data with the rest of the world. And that we agree on completely. Um, that, so that's the sort of central tenet of the campaign is engaging people in science. One thing we all know is that when you engage in citizen science, your belief and trust in science actually accelerates and becomes um, part of your DNA. And we have found by looking at polling and science actually has declined in many countries. In some countries, it's holding steady. In others, it's just plunging. Now, interestingly, because of the pandemic, 
we also saw polling that belief in science is now on an upswing. But when it came to biodiversity, when it came to government regulation, what we're trying to do is actually promote belief and trust in science and citizen science in general um, helps us do that. And I think that's one thing we all agree on. And Ann and Landon also, um, I rely on them mostly. They'll, they'll agree with this on the tech side and the back end side and the how to integrate AI and everything else. So it all, it's a happy marriage in a lot of ways of um, citizen engagement, belief and trust in science, and the beautiful inner workings of the app that allow us to um, use uh, at, you know, artificial intelligence and other learning mechanisms to build and grow as we create this. I know that Landon and I've talked many times about the potential of this app to, as I said before, become one-stop shopping for science for communities. So we also um, share that in common. Thank you. What are the obstacles um, to banning, especially harmful chemicals? Um, well, everybody can answer that. I mean, when it comes to regulating anything, it's always been hard. It's, um, you have lots of different interests. You have farmers' interests in this case. You have chemical manufacturers. You have lots of interests. You don't always have perfect science and science comes in from lots of different sources. And so um, I, as a lawyer, have worked on rules um, with the federal government, sometimes in partnership, sometimes as an um, adversary. But for the most part, I found that um, with around the world that you can have a balance of both um, uh, the need to grow and produce food and the need to protect your citizens. And I think, um, pollinators and the issues around uh, chemicals and fertilizers and other things that we use in our agriculture has been an evolution. Um, it hasn't been as strong in the United States, but whether it's the EU or Thailand, or there, there must be over a hundred companies, uh, countries, excuse me, that are looking at regulating these things. But again, it's really important that everybody's interests be communicated to the government so that they can make uh, their science departments Hopefully not their politicians, but their science departments can make those decisions. And we rely on the science community um, to be uh, good actors in this field. And generally, my experience over 20 years is that they are. I think the pesticides example is really interesting from my perspective, too. In 1995, a researcher named Alan Irwin published a really famous book called Citizen Science about sort of the roots of citizen science in the UK and actually looked at collaborations between professionals and members of the public around um, Agent Orange or DDT and getting that banned for use in agriculture as a really strong root of citizen science practices over there. So I think that goes back to a lot of what Kathleen said about trust in science and you know, brokering collaborations and making it making citizen science that common language that people, you know, members of the public and then professionals can used to talk to each other. And then in terms of helping regulators make decisions, I don't think we've touched on this that much, but a lot of what Earth Challenge 2020 is about is open data. So the data that people are sharing through the app and that we're working with is being made available for anyone to use as a new sort of asset that can definitely help inform those sorts of decisions moving forward. Thank you, Anne. Are there ways for members of the science community that are interested to get further involved with this project? Because in the chat, everyone wants to know what they can do to get involved. Yeah, there are. So any scientists in the room, um, the Wilson Center is actually coordinating six, we're calling them research teams because that's just more fun than advisory boards. But we're actually co-designing the protocols for the app with members of the global scientific research community so that we can make sure that we're collecting high quality data and that there's an actual use for it. So please do get involved. There are even meetings for you all to come to. Yeah. And then Kathleen, people want to know about the app. Where can they get it? I know we talked about the date that it's going to launch, but is there anything specific that people should know about uh, the app itself? Um, Landon, can you answer that question? Um, not that I want to profess any ignorance to um, how you get it and what it means, but Landon is the king of this, so I, 
I'm going to trust okay. you. Tell okay. us all. Landon? Uh, well, I don't know about that. Um, but uh, yes, we, we did a beta launch in the spring. Um, we've learned a lot from how it was working and how um, end users were interacting with the app and, and what was easy for them to do, what was difficult for them to do. Um, uh, things like uh, instructions, uh, the gamification, how do we do training, a lot of those, those elements that um, you immediately put into an app, you obviously get feedback. And so over the last uh, couple of months, we've been getting a lot of great feedback from uh, people that have been using it. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, mere challenges, like how do we, how do we uh, condense the, the, the data packet so that it can go over a, um, uh, a low bandwidth um, of internet because a lot of the people that were using this in different countries have different variations of internet. And so we needed to make sure that we were um, transmitting the data in a way which was um, uh, conducive to anybody around the world. Um, other elements of just, you know, how are we using the smartphone and how are we collecting metadata? Um, Everything is anonymous right now. We, we very, very much are, are worried about uh, protecting uh, the, the privacy of the user. And so we want them to be able to contribute, uh, but be able to protect their own privacy at the same time. Um, at that same point, though, we, we want to make sure we're using different sensors on the phone to help uh, validate or cross-validate some of the data that's coming in. Um, so something very simple. Uh, like how the phone is uh, aimed for like say our um, our air quality uh, widget where we ask people to take a photo of the horizon. Um, we know because of your GPS uh, the location of where you are and we know the date so we actually know where the sun should be um, in relevant relative to you in the sky and because your phone has a gravitometer and an azimuth um, uh, sensor on it we understand where your phone is facing in relative, in, in, in relative to the equator, relative to the North Pole. And so we can help cross-validate some of the photos that come in when someone is uh, you know, having a little bit of fun with us and they're taking photos of photos. Um, we, we have a sense of, hey, is the phone in the right location doing the right thing when they're taking those photos? And that information is embedded in the metadata so when a scientist looks at this data, they can have a little bit more reliability or more trust or confidence in data um, because it's been cross-validated with different meta um, that we were able to do. So little innovations like that within the app um, make it a little easier for the scientist to, to look at the data and go, yeah, I have a, we can, we can assign a certain level of confidence to it. Yeah, that's why I asked Landon to answer that question. <laughs> oh, Kathleen. <laughs> Okay, so questions from um, our audience. We've talked a little about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Can the panel describe the difference between the two? Well, machine learning is when the machine is learning it, and AI is when it's actually doing something from what it learned. Um, and depending upon what type of model you're putting on the back end, you know, if you're using like a fuzzy, a fuzzy logic or if you're using like neural networks, depending on what your model is on the back, um, you're, you're either closer to machine learning or to AI. Um, but there is a huge debate right now in the, the world about what is AI and what is not. Right. So I don't want to get into that, but I will <laughs> say that when, when we're doing, when we're doing uh, the first review of um, the photos, we're, we're actually doing machine learning. We're just okay. trying to teach the machine, this is, this is A and this is B. So that was another question, you know, um, I'll just, I'll ask it just in case there's something there that we can answer. You keep talking about AI. Are you talking about the citizens capturing all of the photos and the experts identifying them so the future photos can run through AI to ID the insect? Is that accurate? Yes, but also, um, so going back to Sam's point that you need a certain level of expertise to identify a bee down to the species, we're also figuring out how to insert members of the public into that process for coming up with broad categories. So saying whether something is a bumblebee, a honeybee, or a carpenter bee based on training materials that are available through the app. So they're not just taking pictures, they're doing that, but they're also contributing 
some of the, the labeling that will help train the, the ML or the AI depending. Okay, one more question from Q&A. Actually, I probably have a couple minutes for a few more, but this one's long. How many academic science librarians are involved with issues related to science, citizen science? For instance, I have nearly 40 years as a science librarian and currently serve departments in the biological sciences, environment and sustainability and geology. And I participate in several library professional associations and also AAAS, AIBS, this is the whole bio. Uh, I don't see many of the librarian colleagues working on citizen science. I would also like to know how, how can we get science educators and researchers working with their librarians? Hmm. So, <laughs> I'll, I'll just say, just for the AAAS fellow, um, we had a, a Jefferson fellow for the State Department help work on this. And um, that Jefferson fellow is the chair for technology over at, I um, can't remember the name of the school. RIT. Yeah, RIT. Thank you very much. Um, so we, we, do, we do reach out to um, anybody, any and, and all people that really want to help and, and contribute. And, you know, I'll let Ann speak to the science part. I'll just say that, you know, we, we did have a lot of contribution from different areas. So I actually made my PhD from a school of library and information science and used to think I wanted to be a librarian, probably honestly still do. There's a lot of opportunities for librarians and similar science networks, digital curation networks to be involved in this. Um, one of them is through the digital curation side. I think it would be great to work together with different associations or professional organizations or even individuals on understanding roles that librarians and other information professionals can play in this. But then also on a more practical note, a trend that we've been seeing on the ground is that libraries, including public libraries, are actually a place where citizen science happens a lot. And some libraries, for example, are working with a platform called SciStarter, who's one of our collaborators, to think about how they can have different kits that people can actually check out to actually do citizen science research. So we have an app for a lot of our data collection activities, but there's actually a pollinator project where you can you know, collect samples or different tools for environmental monitoring and things like that that can actually be checked out of public libraries. So that's another way why libraries can be involved in this sort of thing. Thank you. Anyone else? No? That's a really good idea, so have them contact us. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, contact Kathleen. <laughs> well, I mean, libraries have always been pretty central to what Earth Day does um, anyway, in terms of Earth Day activities. So um, it's a perfect um, fit as far as I'm concerned and agree with um, what Ann said. So one final question. Um, is the widget called the insect widget? Will there be more campaigns rather than just bee campaigns? Are there more campaigns tied to other researchers? And that one's for you. Well, Anne's looking at me, and uh, she's on. And she's Landon's on. laughing. Like <laughs> yeah, well, we 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 have talked to we have talked to um, uh, Department of Interior because they would like to see um, more of a regional study just on monar monarchs because they've been trying to um, uh, bring back and preserve uh, the the traditional area in the, in the um, west part of the United States to preserve, uh, preserve it for monarchs. And so um, there would probably likely be uh, at least one more campaign on that. But we're looking for things that are global and regional. So, and Anne is looking at me like I said something wrong. So I'll be quiet. Uh -oh. No, I think that was a great answer. And I'm really excited to, to see a monarch campaign, especially because there are a lot of really good citizen science projects that are also working in that area that we could partner with. And I would just add that we also are building out the app in different ways. So there was a really interesting comment in the chat about whether the insects app could be used on like a solar farm, for example, as part of their normal, you know, monitoring process. And one of the things that we're exploring for a future version of the app is transect monitoring. So actually being able to survey all of um, the bees, for example, within a certain plot 
and that's another kind of opportunity to get involved in the future. So yes, th there will be a lot more. Yeah, I mean, our goal has always been, as, as we said, is to build out the app so that it has lots of different kinds of data collection um, widgets. And we're thinking about climate change and a bunch of other ones. I mean, one of the things, because Earth Day Network's so global, and of course the State Department has been incredibly useful, both in terms of translations and language, because you have to get those straight when you're talking to people from other parts of the world. They don't talk like I do. Um, so states had a huge role in this. Uh, but also trying to find apps where you don't have to, although the library idea is perfect, where you can check something out and it helps integrate it. But we're trying to find apps and widgets or components of this that you can do without needing to spend 30 bucks for a water uh, quality testing kit or things that you might find at home. So keeping it simple so that we can provide the kind of data that um, Sam needs for all of his research um, is really key to this project, putting power in the hands of citizen scientists so scientists and others can benefit from it. So we want to keep it as simple as possible. But yes, we'll be adding, I hope, a lot more if we can stand um, going through this process each time. It's, it's uh, really iterative and complicated and lots of different uh, interests and perspectives. And so far, we've been able to come up with some really good um, widgets in, as part of this app. Well, thank you. Thank you for your continuous efforts, Kathleen. And everyone involved. I'd like to open up the floor for final remarks. What is the last thing that each of you, the last call to action that each of you would like for, for us to hear and to know and to be left with? Landon, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, I would just say that when we do the relaunch, we'll be relaunching that over the next week. Uh, you'll be getting updates. So if you, I did notice in the chat, some people are downloading the beta version right now. Um, we will be having a uh, uh, the, the relaunch over the next week or so, so uh, get ready for an update. And if you don't notice your phone updating, just visit your your store, your app store, to, to hit the update button. Um, and then, yeah, go out and tell people to to use it. Tell tell a friend. And um, we we do have uh, future plans to to add communities in there, so you can even you know compete with your friends a little bit on how many views you might have spotted on the way home from from school or something so um yeah we'll, we have lots lots more uh uh fun ex action and, and and fun exciting stuff coming so just uh you know, keep keep sharing it thank you landon sam let me get out a chat box here so i want everyone to look at their lawns and to look at other people's lawns and feel shameful about them and to do something about changing it. Exactly, exactly. You're who I'm talking to right there. <laughs> Unnecessary. Just one last thing about that. Keep the edges of whatever landscape you're doing and whatever suburban thing really trim with your string trimmer, your sidewalks, your edges, bedding plants. What you do in the middle is not going to matter as long as you keep up the, um, the idea that you are doing your part by um, doing whatever you're doing on purpose and it looks that way. Okay. So there's really no excuses, none. All right, all right. Thanks, Sam. And? Okay. So Landon asked everybody to come try out the app in about a week. I would say a week after that, come back and check out the Earth Day Network's website so that you can see the data um, you can see your data point on a map that we'll be publishing as well as the data from everybody else who has participated around the world and that's pretty cool. That's super cool. Like really that's cool. I can't wait for that. Thank you, Anne. Kathleen? Um, two things. Be fearless. As Sam told us, you're not going to get stung or probably not going to get stung. So um, that's number one and, and really just go out and help us find the data that we need to save bees worldwide. And second, take an action. Um, as you're uh, taking photos, you'll see the pop-up. It'll give you the opportunity. I hope in your, we're working on this now in your own language or a language that you're used to. And just click that box, send your name, um, and take a step uh, forward to become a B citizen. Um, every B counts. So uh, it's, it's those things that I think uh, will really help the world. The combination of everything we all said. Thank you, Kathleen. And I'd like everyone to 
email earthchallenge2020 at earthday.org with any further questions. We thank you all, thank you to all of our panelists for this really insightful conversation. I am definitely gonna do my part, Sam. I wore my colors, but I'm gonna also trim my hedges and make sure that I do my part within Girls With Knowledge as well. Thank you, Landon and Anne and Kathleen and Sam. Thank you to our, our thank you. Thank you to our viewers. And behind the scenes, I would just like to thank um, Halsey and Katie and Tom and everyone that makes the magic happen. Most importantly, thank you Earth Day Network for facilitating this conversation and allowing us to all do our part. Thank you everyone for joining. Thank Have you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.